Skit. Vi gärde mig en gärdegång. Se och sjunga frunge frunen. Husa så länge sällan främmande. Och skidschefing se och sjunga trettum. Månegon majtum. Mjöldsättla ofta. Exoherlos. Sudna resbörd. Vi har schaffunden. Hittills frågorgebåd. Vi har under vaknum. Vi har mundum där. Utöjt him aglig där i besindra. Uffarandra hindra skulde. Jamban gjelden. Det är en god konig. I did not trade arms for all right, how was that? It's pretty I good. Think I'm having a stroke, guys. There's some. <laughs> what? what was that? I, I blacked out there. Good. It didn't sound like English. <laughs> no, it's that actually was, um, it sounds Scandinavian. That was, that was I believe, Anglo-Saxon. Well, yes, that was the original Anglo-Saxon. That was the the language of the Kingdom of Angles in the uh, the seventh century, as we think we know it. Um, I guess we are now in the show. Uh, good evening, and welcome to Myth of the Seventh Century. Uh, tonight, we will be doing a nice reprieve from. Um, well, uh, the modern day ongoing to the 20th century and how depressing it is and back to a um, less depressing and more interesting time when uh, a man could kill demons and dragons and uh, own a kingdom just by um, beating up some guy's wife. So today we are here to talk about Beowulf, the, uh, I guess, national epic of the English-speaking peoples. Um it's hard to really describe what Beowulf is other than it's a an epic poem. Uh, we don't really know much about it. It's been the subject of intense scholarly debate for uh, potentially at least a thousand years, potentially twelve to thirteen hundred years, as to the exact nature of the uh, original composer, uh, the history of the legend itself, its historiography. Uh, and uh, perhaps why it was so important to the English-speaking peoples to begin with. Um, it is, of course, often ranked uh, and uh, thought of as uh, collectively part of the uh, great works of the prehistoric world or the old world, uh, uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Bhagavad Gita, the Poetic Edas, the Valsanka Sagas, um, and so forth. It is often thought of as part of that broader range of epic poetry and tales. 
off the bat, um, Beowulf uh, is very peculiar in that it is intensely short. It is about a fifth of the length of the Odyssey. Um, and most scholars on the subject, including uh, even J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, the infamous writer of Lord of the Rings and many other works, um, believed that Beowulf was likely – the Beowulf that we have is a scrap of likely an entire uh, alternative history and legend that uh, must have consumed the, the northern world of, uh, of Europe for a long time. Um, there's, a, there's an element to uh, much of the work that Tolkien did in his, his academic studies and his literature that um, touched on a very important subject in that we don't know a great deal about the culture of uh, the Old English. Um, we have some idea of their culture and life through uh, historical and church records. Um, we have things like the burial mound of Sutton Hoo and some of the pre-Norman Bibles that they composed, which are some of the most um, beautiful and, and um, well, uh, you know, intensely adorned with gems and metals and the most incredible uh, calligraphy and illustrations. Um, we, we know very little about them, though, particularly who they were before they came to the shores of, of the British Isles. Uh, and we don't necessarily know much about what they did for roughly the first century um, that they were there. Uh, there's a Saint Bede the Venerable in uh, Historia Ecclesiastica Gentis Anglorum, the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical history of the English people, wrote that in uh, in the late 7th century, Caedmon, an illiterate Northumbrian cowherd, was inspired in a dream to compose a short hymn in praise of creation. Um, and this is the sort of um, retroactively believed beginning to what we think of as English epic literature. But we don't know for certain um, because much of English uh, literature, much of the old English culture was, uh, was lost in the Norman invasion. There was a deliberate attempt um, by the Normans to destroy much of uh, uh, old English heritage. Um, poets were killed, scribes were killed, priests were killed. Um, we know that there was a great deal of damage done to the cultural and religious institutions in England um, after the Battle of Hastings. And really that what we get out of Beowulf um, as, as a, a great documentary on Tolkien I actually watched described is that um, we really only get two tales. We get um, kind of – well, we get kind of three we get at the beginning of Beowulf the prologue, um, which is sort of like a summary of events that you're almost expected to know already. Uh, the the uh, the history of the the Danish royal court and the uh, history of Beowulf's father and his family at Gethel, and uh, then it sort of jumps into his fight with Grendel, a demon. And then it immediately makes a sharp jump to his time as an old man and his fight with the dragon. Um, and Tolkien used to 
bring up a, a good point that um, there's much that was expected you would know going into your reading of the Iliad in the old Greek world. For example, it was expected that you already knew much of the history of Achilles. And in fact, you knew personally you would know or you would have heard of the events that led up to the Trojan War. Um, many things uh, about the mythology of Achilles, of the old Greek world, of the Trojan War, of the gods themselves um, are left out of the Iliad. They're not explained or it's expected that you know quite a bit. And there are aspects of Beowulf where it feels the same. Um, the, it proceeds in a very matter-of-fact way, as though it's just telling – parts of it are just telling a, a quick conglomerated history to then give you a, a reminder of context for what's about to come. Um, and in that sense, Beowulf definitely feels incomplete while you're, while you're reading it. There are sharp jumps in time. Um, there are very small asides to what feel like other adventures, Beowulf or others in that are mentioned might have gone on. There are mentions of the Finns. There are slight references to Rome. There are slight references to other places. There are uh, a lot of references to the Swedes that kind of feel unanswered. And um, it, it feels as though Beowulf um, was probably a much grander legend at the time in the northern world, much the way that the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid were the grander legends of the southern world or southern Europe uh, for a very long time. And they uh, created a mythology of their own. And um, it's very likely that uh, the, the northern world as we thought of it uh, and still think of it to an extent today, uh, had its own view, not only of the history of themselves and the world, but of um, potentially real events that might have been slightly mythologized. Um, for example, uh, there there is a growing belief that the events uh, categorized in uh, the Iliad are more than likely a sort of retelling and reimagination of the very provable series of wars fought between the Mycenaeans and the Hittites prior to the Bronze Age collapse, and that it is sort of mythologized by the successors to the Mycenaeans, uh, the sort of Dorian Hellenic Greeks. And Beowulf, in many ways, could be that as well. It could be a tale of a very long lost time that has been mythologized and potentially a man that was mythologized uh, for some reason. Um, and it is, uh, it, like I said at the beginning, it is sort of, I guess, the national epic of the English-speaking peoples. Um, Tolkien used to say that... Uh, um, you know, when the Brothers Grimm went around um, Central Europe and Germany and so forth, collecting the old wives' tales and the old fairy tales and compiling them, there were similar attempts in England to do the same. Um, and they mostly failed because um, even as early as the 17th century, 18th century, there was a recognition 
that um, much of the old English fairy tales and much of the old English culture had been irrevocably lost and in some cases purposefully destroyed. And Beowulf is the closest thing the English have to a founding myth, which is the the irony there is that it has almost nothing to do with the English themselves. It is strictly a tale about uh, ostensibly foreigners, the Geats, the Danes, and the Swedes, uh, that people have nothing that have nothing to do with the English, um, other than they were at one point maybe culturally close to them, um, and they were maybe in contact. The Angles and the Saxons and the Utes were definitely uh, geographically close to the Danes, for example, and might have heard these stories uh, in that sense. Uh, And it also, in many ways, was definitely written or composed in its form. We don't know if these uh, these tales uh, had a different formulation. They likely did before they were composed by the anonymous author in Old English. But there's very clearly an attempt by a Christian Old English poet or writer to look at modern, at the time, contemporary English society through the eyes of what was very likely a um, well-appreciated folktale or series of folktales about a man named Beowulf. Uh, There are references to, obviously, the Christian God. There are references to Roman roads. There are uh, lots of usage of um, sort of image image descriptions that would only make sense from the English context. Um, There's a a part about um, the plains bordered by the oceans, the endless plains bordered by the oceans, which sounds very like, you know, very much like central and southern England. And there's no other real place in Europe that would have that sort of um, imagery that we could easily find. Uh, so, I don't know. What do you guys think about Beowulf? What do you guys think about um, the closest thing to uh, the mythology of the English people that we, we really have? It's a great campfire story. Yeah. Lots of blood and guts, lots of battles. I mean, it shares that much with the, uh, the Iliad. Like, there's clearly parts in there where you're supposed to... Uh, really get up in your you know nine-year-old's face and be like and then he ripped his very guts out can you imagine the arm flailing around the meat hall i always thought english history was king arthur so i'm admitting my ignorance here i've heard the name of beowulf but i knew very little before this this call well, the, the Arthurian legends aren't even really English at their core. <laughs> that, that's something that kind of came later. Um, uh, that like the, the true old English literature would be things like, um, uh, God, the, the Battle of, of uh, Maldon, uh, the Dream of the Rude, uh, Judith, Beowulf. The like Hobbit. the, the yeah, <laughs> like the Camelot and Arthurian stuff came much later, although for whatever that's become very ingratiated but, into <clears throat> English knighthood chivalry culture. The, like the old founding culture of England uh, had, had nothing really it was had nothing to really to do with that. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact 
history of how King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table came as a tale within England, but it was not uh, not something that was there to begin with. I think that the Tolkien's idea that uh, maybe belonged something it was a fragment that belonged to something larger that was lost is very compelling. I think that you see it in Tolkien's work itself. Uh, for example, the, just the theme of the of the king who is too weak or unable to defend his kingdom. I mean, that's true of like when you read Beowulf, whatever translation it is, it's something that you see. You see those themes pop up in a lot of other elements of our culture. And Tolkien, uh, in, in particular, in Lord of the Rings, for example, uh, the king of you know, this is a very similar figure where he's he is unable to defend his kingdom and a, a hero from outside of neighboring people has to has to come in and help. Yeah, you see that a lot, in, especially like the Silmarillion, where like the, the stories of Numenor and uh like the elves of Valinor and, you know, coming from a foreign land to rid the demons from the world. And um, um, I think that one thing that, uh, you know, Raffle and, um, and Tolkien and others talked about is that not only do we, we think that it's a fragment of many other tales or stories, um, but that the the story that we do have all uh, is also somewhat um, wanting. And in that, uh, there is an essay written by Tolkien um, on the difficulty of translating Beowulf, basically. And part of what he noted was that um, the language, the linguistic devolution from Old English to modern English, or even to Chaucerian English, was so drastic. Um, that it's hard for us to truly capture the emotive context of the words that are written. Um, there are many words that don't have a great modern translation, um, or there are words that have a complete modern translation, but to give them a literal uh, sort of transliter transliterative replacement uh, would not really capture the feeling. And so then they're left trying to capture the feeling on their own. So Raffle does this thing. There's the, the line at the end of the uh, bit of dialogue I, I read from the beginning, which is the beginning verses of Beowulf. Uh, and it ends with um, that West the good conig is literally means that was a good king. Uh, and you can say God, good, kind of king, you know, that, that, Wes. It all, it makes perfect sense with modern English, small sentences like that. But Raffle translated as that was a brave king. And he does this because, uh, you know, it's under the belief that if you just say that that was a good king, it doesn't capture likely what the orator or what the original composer of the poem was trying to capture. 
because up till that, it's describing this uh, this noble warrior with, with gold, and uh, he delivers victories to his men, and he was a great king. He was a good king. Um, to just say matter-of-factly he was a good king doesn't capture what it's intended to do. So not only are we missing huge amounts of the mythology that go into Beowulf, we know an immense amount about the Greek pantheon, which influences the story of uh, how we kind of understand the Iliad and the Odyssey. You know, we know literally not nothing, but substantially less about uh, the underlying mythology behind Beowulf. Because... um, we don't exactly know what was going on in this region at the time. This was sort of an, uh, an amorphous time for the region. It's not even really clear when Beowulf was supposed to be set. Um, it could be a set of pre-Christian tales. There are some, but you know, you can kind of make the sense that it is a Okay, it's a post-Christian tale. It's after Christianity has already made its way into the Northlands. Um, so maybe four or five hundred A.D. Maybe, but we don't really know. For example, um, if the author himself, uh, whoever it is, the poet, is um, inflecting that upon a retelling of Beowulf. Um, there's so much that's lost that we don't really know if this is even the original Beowulf tale. If the, if this story of Beowulf and the dragon hasn't been reiterated over and over and recursed so many times that now it's, you know, it, it's a, it's a Christian story on morality and when it very well have, could have started as something else entirely, it might've just been, uh, an ancient Norse warrior killed a dragon for these reasons. And that was it. I'm going to go with the latter. So the, you know, Beowulf, I think it captures the imagination because it's a great story, but it, it, it lends itself to so much historical um, introspection because within this small set of poems, it's only a couple thousand lines. Um, you're sort of mystified by how this even came to be and why it survived for so long. Um, for whatever reason, <laughs> the, the English considered this to be something that needed absolute protection and continuation in the face of Norman invasion. This was something particular that needed to survive. Uh, why that is, we don't know. We don't necessarily even know why it was so important to them. Again, it's ostensibly a tale about foreigners. You could make the argument that it does have a very English character to it in like the Shakespearean sense, um, in that uh, William Shakespeare uh, wrote extensively (laughs) about foreigners, um, but was using it as a way to talk about English society and morality issues within English people and broader universal issues through historical stories, through stories that were purely mythological uh, that took place in other times and cultures and places. So maybe that was the intention. We don't know, and we don't know if this was something that um, was picked up by the Angles in their close geographic proximity to the Danes, 
uh, into where the you suppose the Geats could have lived um, as just uh, a set of stories that were exchanged in trade or uh, in, in, I don't know, their, their State Department meetings. Uh, it, it definitely, it, it captures my imagination because uh, I think it opens a window into a part of the world that uh, clearly was um, very violent and very tumultuous, but also could produce great tales and great craft work. Um, and we know little to nothing about it. We have vague insight into their mythology and vague insight into um, their war-making activities, which mostly came later. But we don't know much else about them. Um, we don't know about these people who kind of were isolated in the north and their uh, their their trials and tribulations, especially after the fall of Rome. We we don't we don't really know. And it is all the more fascinating, given that all of these places have gone on to become some of the most important people on the planet. You know, the Danes, the Swedes and the English, um, small in number, but massively outsized in their impact. And we don't really know where these people came from or who they were originally. And I think Beowulf gives an interesting insight into into the, the character of the people of the time. Um, and you can kind of see how some of those traits have carried on over the years. They're, they're still somewhat like that. They're still like that, that hearkening for, for glory and that um, hearkening for... Uh, stable leadership, I would say. Uh, Beowulf, uh, later on, he's an old man. You know, his his chief uh, idea of like day to day life is how to keep things stable, how to keep everyone employed and rewarded with gold. Um, it definitely feels like modern Denmark and modern England, and to extent, you know, it's a very stable society. No one causes, no one wants to cause problems and get in trouble. Everyone just kind of wants to do their craft and, and get by and not have to deal with something evil. So what, what is the significance of the dragon? Is that jumping ahead? We, don't have, we can jump ahead. Um, well, there's a hundred different interpretations. Most of them kind of fall back to, um, uh, the dragon, I think, is supposed to is mostly uh, in the Beowulf that we have um, a tale of of uh, Christian inevitability and fate. Um, there's also an element of it too that feels like a uh, um, sort of the the right, like almost like the beginnings of the the righteous crusader and. Um, uh, there's a passage early on. There are actually in the in the the tale with Grendel. There are several passages talking about um, uh, the, the Grendel's the enemy of mankind, or he's one of the enemy of mankind. And um, obviously, the implication here, and they literally even say at one point that Grendel is a is a demon of some kind, like something left over from Cain and Abel. And um, Beowulf, by proxy, is on some kind of holy mission from God. 
to rid the world of everything that was left over sort of from the old times, from the time before Christ, from the time before the early uh, messiahs, um, from the old world. Uh, Beowulf is on a mission to rid the world of it. Um, uh, there's this bit, a powerful monster living down in... Hey, can I make a point here? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just real quick, yeah. So <clears throat> I think, uh, and you mentioned this earlier, Hans, uh, is one of the debates around the text. Uh, but I, I tend to be of the opinion that this is some kind of post-Christian retcon uh, that... Yeah, and you see it also in some translations. You see really strange mingling of Christian terminology with pre-Christian terminology, namely, uh, and that I revisited was the use of talking about the time of the giants and talking concurrently using terms like uh, references to Cain and Abel. Though much of them may say this, I'm trying to... I think that this. Story, I I don't know why there's much debate about this. I think it's pretty clear this is, this story predates Europe. Yeah, and you can see an attempt um, to try and uh, and you you have to wonder if this was if this was actively being done to the the Anglo-Saxon population at the time is uh try and inculcate uh, sorry let me add also oh good uh just real uh, sorry because my connection is bad i just wanted to make my points uh, <clears throat> you see uh, you see the exact same phenomenon as uh that adam mentioned earlier in arthurian legend you see the exact same phenomenon the the early grail myths uh were pre-christian and there were a lot of there was a lot of retconning that was done to adapt that into a into christian europe so it's there's a similar process at work, and I know quite a bit more about the Grail myths than I do about Beowulf because I haven't really I've only read so many translations, probably two or three over many years. Uh, I have not yet read Tolkien's attempt at a translation, and I'm interested to do so. So if you guys have any thoughts on that, also, but please go on, Hans. Those were my points. Yeah, and like the on the Arthurian stuff. I mean, there. The Arthurian stuff in particular feels almost in some ways like uh, when people talk about like, uh, you know, the Christ figure appears in various uh, kinds of um, mythologies, Mithra, Balder. There's like these convergent realities that keep popping up. Um, the Arthurian stuff has that same feel. Uh, the sword and the stone in legend in particular and you know only the, the 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 boy of noble blood can pull it out the magic sword um they've found that in old celtic mythology and old scythian and steppe mythology it's very widespread um, there's a good amount of convergent evolution going on here too yes, or people yeah. ignored the fact that like at least some of the uh, stories in the Christian Bible clearly, obviously, have pre-Christian origins. Yes, like people use this whole train of thought to argue that 
the figure Jesus of Nazareth was not a historical figure because like, oh, they they stole like the whole Osiris bit of he had to float down the Nile in a in a uh, sack of reeds like he had to flee uh, or be executed by the king because they were killing all the newborns. Like these are elements that pop up. And like the notion of self-sacrifice is also not something that Christians have a monopoly on. The The notion of uh, redemption is not necessarily something that Christians have a monopoly on. So, I mean, redemption I mean, is a massive part of the Iliad and the Odyssey. <laughs> yeah, it's like a this, huge part of it. Yeah, like the the unsatisfiability of uh, vengeance, and some of this too is you can't really tell where it came from because you don't have the cultural context. So even when you're reading right. the original, it's inflected by uh, right. your interpretation of that. Like I'm also more familiar with the Iliad than I am with Beowulf, and like the immense amount of uh, cruelty i guess you could say like entertaining like ha ha you're hurt fuck you uh in the iliad like yeah you can say that there's like christian themes but it's clearly like a weird non like not developed as a christian work yeah and i think that it would be it would be a really difficult sell to say that Beowulf was developed as a Christian work yeah. as opposed to, well, there are these elements that came in who knows when, and you could, if you wanted to interpret them through a Christian lens. But in my view, that's just, you know, a mark of good literature, right? Like you can interpret it through these multiple lenses and, and they're not dispositive. Like otherwise you just get to do the the bullshit like ninth grade, uh, okay, we have to read Beowulf thing where it's like, well, I think the dragon is society. <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> this really says a lot. Like Well, I think the, the dragon my is my mother. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick mentioned a passage earlier, and I have it right here. Um and I'll read this because I think it's getting at this theme, and I'm also building up to answer Adam's question, what's the deal with the dragon? Um, a powerful monster, this is about Grendel, this is very early on. A powerful monster living down in the darkness growled in pain, impatient as day after day the music rang. Loud in that hall the harps rejoicing, call in the poet's clear songs, sung of the ancient beginnings of us all. Recalling the Almighty making the earth, shaping these beautiful plains marked off by oceans, then proudly setting the sun and the moon to glow across land and light it. The corners of the earth were made lovely with trees and leaves made quick with life, with each of the nations who now move on its face. And then, as now warriors sang of their pleasure, so Hrothgar's men lived happily in this hall till the monster steward, that demon, that fiend, Grendel, who haunted the moors, the wild marshes, and made his home in a hell. Not hell, but earth. He was spawned in that slime, conceived by a pair of those monsters born of Cain, murderous creatures banished by God, punished forever for the crime of Abel's death. The Almighty drove those demons out, and their exile was bitter, shut away from men, 
they split into a thousand forms of evil, spirits and fiends, goblins, monsters, giants, a brood forever opposing the Lord's will and again and again defeated. So you kind of get the impression that at the time, the Anglo-Saxons probably had a set of myths of their own and, and stories of um, this man, Beowulf. And very likely there was maybe a story they had where Beowulf uh, had some kind of interaction with them, which is why he was important to them, although that's probably been lost. Um, but you can see like the elements here that go way back into the old northern mythologies, uh, this idea of the goblins and the giants and the fiends and the spirits and the soldiers of hell and that, um, okay, uh, mankind is doing battle and has always done battle with these things and has been on a quest to eliminate them from the world for one reason or another. And much of Norse mythology is filled with accounts like that where um, there's almost like an, an eternal uh, ongoing war to ensure that um, Midgard or the world for men – is only for men, that everyone else is sort of kicked out and sent to their own area or sent to their own plane of existence. They're not allowed to live with us there. They need to be exterminated for some reason. And then sort of being reframed here as well, all those things were real and they're gone now because of good men like Beowulf, who knowingly or not, did the work of the Almighty Lord and, and destroyed the evils of the old world, the old demons, the old monsters. And now we live in the world of Christ. Um, and then you kind of come to the dragon. So the dragon, the old, like the, the sort of the basement ninth grader tier is um, the dragon is pride. And it's Beowulf's pride getting the best of him. Um, that's dumb for a number of reasons. Number one, um, most cultures have had a story or many of a man killing a monster. Um, many have stories of that man dying in the process, in the process of killing the monster. And generally, it's in a ride-or-die situation, like the kingdom's going to burn down, or the queen will die, or the children will be eaten, that kind of thing. you got to give it your all, like it's now or never kind of moment. In the case of Beowulf, the kingdom will be burned to the ground, maybe the whole world. Um, nothing really can stop this creature other than Beowulf. So it's not necessarily, I think, just an attempt to look well, at. The, the, Go ahead. Okay. And so the problem with that, the biggest problem I see with that interpretation is that, and furthermore, the spirit of the text, as we can understand it, gives no evidence that he was anything other than a good king. And that, that, that's one of the enduring Themes is what is it that makes a good king? Right. And Beowulf is right of, of exactly those things. Yeah, I mean, Beowulf is not, at the end, is not remembered as like, 
like an arrogant dickhead who got himself killed for money and fame. Like here's the end of Beowulf. A huge heap of wood was ready, hung around with helmets and battle shields and shining mail shirts, all as Beowulf had asked. The bearers brought their beloved lord, their glorious king, and weeping laid him high on the wood. Then the warriors began to kindle that greatest of funeral fires. Smoke rose above the flames, black and thick. And while the wind blew and the fire roared, they wept, and Beowulf's body crumbled and was gone. The Geats stayed, moaning their sorrow, lamenting their lord, a gnarled old woman, hair wound, tight and gray on her head, groaned a song of misery, of infinite sadness and days of mourning, of fear and sorrow to come, slaughter and terror and captivity, and heaven swallowed the billowing smoke. Then the Geats built the tower, as Beowulf had asked, strong and tall, so sailors could find it from far and wide. Working for ten long days, they made his monument, sealed his ashes in walls as straight and high as wise and willing hands could raise them. And the riches he and Wiglaf had won from the dragon, rings, necklaces, ancient hammered armor, all the treasures they'd taken were left there too, silver and jewels buried in the sandy ground, back in the earth again, and forever hidden and useless to men. Like, so it's not – is there an element of it that I think is being interpreted as well? Yeah, it's about pride and it, you know your arrogance will get you killed. Um, no. I think that honestly it's much deeper and that Beowulf um, is effectively elevated to a nearly Christ-esque figure. Um, here's a man who um, understands, very clearly understands in, in his final moments that he is going to die. Like there, he's not getting out of this situation. But he's also a man that knows his time has come anyways. He's lived a very long, very storied life. He's the legend of the Northern Seas. Um, and he's this revered king who has bestowed immense wealth and fortitude upon his people, who were kind of nobodies. It's, it's sort of implied at the beginning and throughout um, before him. His dad was a well-known kind of seafarer and kind of a hard guy, but they weren't anyone special. They were just sort of uh, like, like a band of mercenaries. And now they're uh, you know, they're full yeah, of flesh he, he became special through deeds, right? Right. And you know, there's nothing wrong here with a grug-brained interpretation. I think it's actually very much in the spirit of the old Northern Aryans, and it's that you know what makes a good man? A good man is a man who kills his enemies. Who should a good man? The one who kills the enemies. Yeah, but there's an, there's another element to it here too, in that it honestly the end of Beowulf uh, and the the uh, his funeral is incredibly reminiscent of the funeral of Achilles, and um, there's there's the element in the the, the moment in the Iliad when all the men are sort of around the funeral pyre for Achilles, and in a lot of ways Achilles was their king. More so than Agamemnon or uh, any of the other, or Menelaus or any of the other 
supposed kings of the Greeks were, um, they elevated him to that to that almost kingly role in his at the end. And um, certainly Odysseus sort of thinks so. I mean, Odysseus uh, revered the guy so much, he like performed some sort of demonic <laughs> blood libation to try and talk to him from the, the underworld and in the Odyssey or like just insane stuff just so he could see him again. And you kind of you get this same sense with Beowulf that, yes, it's about good deeds and it's, it's okay to um, want to be pride, to be prideful, to be bashful, to want your name to live forever if what you're doing is the right thing. So it's not like the idea that the dragon represents, oh, it's his downfall, it's his pride, it's his arrogance as an old man getting him killed. It doesn't really lead up to that. It leads up to a man who knows his time is over and wants to go out with a bang. And it's the perfect opportunity because he finally gets to clean up this loose end in his life, this dragon business and the business with Grendel's mother and all of it. And he finally is able to uh, save his kingdom once and for all and ensure that they live for they live on forever, at least in history. And in his kind of in, in their his final instructions, he ensures that all the riches and the treasure and everything that they got out of this um, was put back where it was. And the gems were reburied and none of it could ever be touched again by man. You know, he didn't do it for money and fame. Um, he had the same approach as a fly fisher. He just sort of, or like a can, like catch and release. He just threw it back in the water and let it go. Uh, it, the whole story of the dragon, uh, definitely feels like the author or the, the poet trying to teach a morality lesson, maybe not even necessarily a Christian one, but just a morality lesson to the people at the time, which is, it's okay to do a good deed. It's okay to want yourself to live on forever. And bear in mind that when we talk about Christian morality, like you're, you're talking about a poem that was composed. God only knows when, but you're, you're talking about, you know, call it the 800s AD conception of Christianity, which was a incredibly syncretic, especially in the area, uh, uh, mythos like there's a um i forget what the the name is uh i want to say it's like the the hegland uh, bible or something it's basically a bunch of priests go up to proselytize uh the the vikings and or at least people from that area and they rewrote half of the new testament as jesus is a warlord and his 12 disciples are his battle band and they go out to do battle with Satan and they compose it in the style of these Norse epics. Um, it's, it's pretty good, uh, <clears throat> for like a flavor at least of, you know, it's, it's not quite recognizable as nice guitar youth pastor Christianity, uh, level like quote unquote Christian morality. So, it's unclear if you were a monk in like 800, 900 AD and you're taking this pre-existing myth of Beowulf 
and you are trying to load it down with Christian symbolism, it's like, okay, what does that actually look like? <laughs> I mean, if you're being taught explicitly that Christ was uh, the leader of a war band sent to defeat ultimate evil, that starts to sound like kind of the Ur myth of literally every mythological figure who is identifiable as good yeah. because that's like that's again a pre-existing human myth so i mean i i don't think that in kind of like a theological sense that you can say that beowulf is a quote-unquote christ figure like self-sacrifice is not the essence of like christian theology like the notion of like people uh, like kings fighting for their uh, for their subjects, like comrades fighting for their brothers in arms, like the, these are eternal things. Uh, the notion of uh, sort of redemption for sin is something that doesn't, as I remember it, really exist in Beowulf. It's not like oh, the people are wicked and, like, the king uh, fights on their behalf to redeem them. It's like, no, they're, they're just chilling in the mead hall, terrified, hoping that somebody can go and solve this problem for them. Yeah, there's, uh, I think, partial part of what you're talking about is the dream of the rude, which is um, one of the few other pieces of old elegic high uh, high poetry or high epics from the old English era. And it is <laughs> literally, if I remember correctly, um, it's about uh, the, the tree upon the, the tree that Christ was crucified upon, according to the legend, talks and, and talks about Christ's death. And that is what presents Jesus as like, a warlord <laughs> who like willingly gave himself up in the end, but had prior to that been on some kind of guerrilla crusade war or something um, for whatever reason. I, I believe that's the dream of the rude, which is from the, the Vercelli document, which is like this one of the few manuscripts that we have this physical manuscripts where, we have this surviving Old English uh, literature and poetry, um, but yeah, yeah there, there's a there's an element to uh, Raffles' uh, forward in the edition I have, or I guess his introduction, um, if I can find it very quickly. Uh, ah, here we go. Yeah, it's the uh, the Hellions, uh, the Hellion Bible, which the is Hellion Bible, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is I think distinct from the Dream of the Rude. Uh, um, so this this is a story that appeared multiple times. <laughs> yeah, it's like I mean, it makes sense. It's like this is the technique. isn't this like basically like, literally the Arian heresy, <laughs> like uh, that Jesus was like a, a half like demigod warlord type who was uh, like uh, like like half hippie half uh crusader in arms this is just what you do yeah like you show up you show up to korea and it's like suddenly you've got korean jesus <laughs> and he's yeah. super jacked like just 
up there, like not looking particularly phased by the cross because that's what they're into. And if your job and avocation in sincere belief that the way that you redeem both your soul and theirs is to get them to worship Jesus Christ, like maybe, I mean, it's not even bending the truth. It's like, well, they're, these are stories that cover a lot of bases. Like, you know, there's a part where Jesus takes a whip and beats so the shit my, out of some people like talk about that a lot. My, my understanding of when Christian missionaries went to China and they were trying to translate the, the Christian Bible to Chinese. Uh, they ran into a lot of trouble considering that there was no real analog to their God concept. And so what they ended up rolling with was some variation of like basically most eldest brother. Bro. So here's um, here's a, a part from uh, Raffles, Sir Burton Raffles forward on the edition I have. <clears throat> the excavation of Sutton Hu, a ceremonial and probably a kingly burial ship of perhaps the 7th century, has shown how small a role fancy played in such descriptions. And he's talking to uh, jewelry and wealth and golden swords and such. The riches and wonders of Sutton who need no cataloging here. Like all poets, this one is capable of exaggeration of stretching a point to make the story move more easily, but not in truly important matters. And the burial of a king was, for him, of an importance second to nothing. Even his talk of precious objects carried from the ends of the earth has been proven not a bit exaggerated. The Sutton Hoo burial treasures included a large silver dish stamped with the mark of Byzantine Emperor Anastasius, who died in A.D. 518. Attractive most, almost most attractive to us of all the many-sided excellences of Beowulf is the poet's insight into people, combining in a sense his concern for Anglo-Saxon morality with his descriptive and narrative powers his delineation of men like Hrothgar and Viglaf, the care and the eloquence of his portrayals is deeply satisfying. Most of it is indirect, accomplished, like the best of contemporary fictional characterization. There is people's own words and movements. The eager excitement of Wolfgar, for example, hurrying off to announce Beowulf's arrival to King Hrothgar fairly leaps from his five-line speech. So... Uh, and that kind of goes back to one of my points in that this is um, – it could – you know, the, one angle to this could be that it is uh, ostensibly maybe if it was not a super ancient tale that was reiterated or recursed multiple times, you could interpret it as well. This is um, somewhat similar to the Shakespearean tradition where we take a subject that is ostensibly nothing to do with England. But at its core, uh, you know, it's it's about Julius Caesar or it's about Denmark or it's about um, something totally mythical. Uh, and on the surface level, English don't even appear. It's almost like they don't exist and the story is about someone else. But you read into it and it's very clearly a story of the English through the through the own eyes of the English. And it's a it's part of cultural development. And it could be – that's sort of what I think Raffle is somewhat implying. But then he, he kind of gives 
a, a different take later on. He says some of the more or less self-contained episodes, like the famous Finn section, are developed with a tight, concise skill that shows the poet at ease in small forms as well as large. Apparent obscurities in the Finn section and elsewhere are more our fault than his. Too many centuries separate us, and too many universal illusions have become blank spaces for scholarship to struggle to fill. The elegy of the last survivor of some unnamed noble race in lines 2247 to 2266 is worthy of comparison with famous Old English poems as The Ruin and Dior. See again, poems from the Old English. Indeed, though I have no evidence whatsoever, such as the poet's power and virtuosity, that I do not believe it possible for Beowulf to have been the beginning and end of his literary production. His other work, both early and late, may well have been destroyed, along with all the rest of what must be missing from Old English literature. So you, again, kind of get the impression that um, even someone as educated on the subject as Raffle entertains all the theories on what Beowulf is really about or, or you know, even the historiography or the anthropology of, of it all. Um, there's one other theme that's really interesting in that both in the very beginning, Beowulf effectively starts out with um, a, uh, a summary of events, and then it goes right into a funeral pyre, and then a description of a funeral, and it ends with a funeral pyre. And it uh, it's mostly about the old family that Beowulf is coming to interact with, and then Beowulf himself at the end. So you see... Um, this story of Shield, Shield's strong son was the glory of Denmark. His father's warriors were round, were round his heart with golden rings, beyond bound to their prince by his father's treasure. So young men build the future, wisely open-handed in peace, protected in war, so warriors earn their fame and wealth is shaped with a sword. And then Shield's reign had been long. He'd ruled them well. There in the harbor was a ring, proud fighting ship, its timbers icy waiting. And there they brought the beloved body of their ring-giving lord and laid him near the mast. Next to the noble corpse, they heaped up treasures, jewels, helmets, hooked swords and coats of mail, armor carried from the ends of the earth. No ship had ever sailed so brightly fitted. No king sent forth more deeply mourned. But then at the end, Beowulf becomes a king more deeply mourned than, um, than S.H.I.E.L.D. really is. And there's an element here of not only you want, uh, I guess, uh, Beowulf becomes a greater legend than this random guy that's brought up at the beginning of the story of Beowulf, um, which implies that there's more cultural context that's needed here about the S.H.I.E.L.D. character and the history of the Danish royal house who are these people? We were given almost no idea who they are. We're given a very brief family tree at the beginning. Um, and it, it sort of feels like, well, you remember that shield guy? Remember the legends of that Danish guy? Well, this geet, this geetish guy is a hundred times cooler than him. And he did all these amazing things and he had an even better funeral pyre with more stuff. But there's an element from a storytelling perspective that you can tell that is it's been assembled in a way where there's a like an almost like a loop effect to, you know, 
good king dies, leaves the world in kind of disarray, forces everyone to deal with the problem. No one wants to deal with the problem. You know, uh, the, the, the Danes don't know how to deal with Grendel. They don't know what to do. So they have to contact or they, they don't even contact him. He just hears about it and shows up and, and harasses them until they give him the contract <laughs> to kill Grendel. Uh, and then his, his career begins from there. And then he dies a good king and he leaves his kingdom in a better place than it was before. And he leaves Denmark in a better place than it was before. And there's an element in here that really seems to speak to the notion of king, you know, the, the royal kingly lines, that, which were of immense importance, as Raffle points out. These, this was of immense cultural importance. The kings were just the centerpiece of many of these people's culture. Their chieftains were everything to them. In many ways, they were sort of the they were supposed to be literally and figuratively the manifestation of gods on earth and working through them. Well, you get the idea that Beowulf is also in many ways a cultural warning, not just to the average Anglo-Saxon, but maybe even to uh, those of higher status or power in that society. In that Good kings are remembered for good deeds, and good kings are remembered for their humbleness and their sacrifice and their love of their people and their inability to be compromised and, and to give up. You know, those are the traits that make a good king. And it creates this sort of balance of power effect, this, this storytelling where the people begin to expect this of their king. And their king knows that this is expected of him. These are the stories people were brought up on. I need to act like Beowulf would. I need to do what, what would Beowulf do? That kind of cultural effect. So you can see there's a lot of intentionality in the Beowulf um, poem that we have, whatever that's really comprised of, is uh, – it's, it's supposed to serve some kind of purpose. It's not just a collection of stories. Um, whether or not it is incomplete, it is definitely created uh, in it the form that we see to have a direct effect on English society, to try and teach a morality tale that is far more complex than just prize the downfall and the ultimate sin of man or whatever. Like It, it has clearly gone way beyond that, and it's intended to. You know, a lot of literature was sort of cultivated explicitly as borderline instruction manuals. Like it's right. things for people with spare time to do. That's why you have manuscripts and not just a purely oral tradition. Well, the Egyptian Book of the Dead is very much like that. I mean, it, the, it, it, the Mongolian uh, secret history. Yes, uh, I, for, I forgot the the secret history of the Mongols or like the, the life of Temujin. Yeah, yeah, I forgot to mention that. But I remember thinking I was rereading Beowulf. I remember thinking about that, like, man, there's an element here, too, that feels very uh, like like a convergent reality and that these mythical heroes – some of whom were real, some of whom um, might not have been Beowulf, 
but some like Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, they're um, purposefully buried or hidden away from the world. I mean, the Mongols have the story. They went to these extreme lengths to hide the tomb, the burial tomb of Genghis Khan somewhere in the steppe. Um, Alexander the Great's ultimate resting place is not known. Beowulf is, is um, his body and all of his treasures and jewels and all of his possessions are lit on fire and sunk out at sea, never to be seen again, covered by the, by the seabed. And so there's this element here, too, of like uh, you don't necessarily need to have a magnificent burial mound or burial tomb or temple built to yourself to live on in history. You can live on in history strictly through legend. And it doesn't matter where you're buried. It matters how people remember you. And so Beowulf feels like an amalgamation of many of the ultimate fates of uh, great men through history um, and that you might not know where they're buried, but you know who they were and you know what they did. And it'll, it'll always matter more what they did than where they wound up. Like there's not some elaborate tomb. They're not buried in a literal pyramid somewhere. They're, they're sort of hit lost to history. Um, but they're infinitely more famous than any of the random emperors of Egypt, uh, you know, the, the 20 or 30 dynastic kings of Egypt, many of whom are kind of very similar, um, you know where they're buried. They have these elaborate burial tombs or these huge monuments that they had built to themselves after they died. Um, and they're not nearly as interesting as people that have completely vanished, like Genghis Khan and Alexander. I'm a huge fan just you know, aside from the kind of meta level aspects of what is this book for, like, why was this written, that kind of thing. I really like the uh, like if you look at it from a movie context, the opening scene of like, well, you've got this absolute horror show which actually is like pretty horrifying. People are being dismembered and you've got descriptions of like arms and legs strewn about and stuff. Uh, and then this guy just shows up on the seashore and he has to insult his way into the hall where he like offers to solve the problem. Like this is, this would be good. Like Hollywood premise setup act one, the guy arrives then, like, you've got the end of Act One, like, battle scene. It, it's very tightly plotted as, like, an actual uh, sort of internally facing uh, work of fiction. And the elements of that actually work as storyline. Sometimes when you have uh, these works that are like, well, this is the thing that happened to survive, or uh, this is kind of like famous. So we're going to make sure that it survives. You don't always necessarily get stuff that, uh, is sort of, uh, high quality from like just a appreciation of fiction perspective. Like, you know, the new Testament is essential, but a lot of the stuff in there was put in there because somebody thought that it was important to put it in there. Not because, wow, like the book of John is this like 
cool, well-plotted, tight narrative arc. Uh, I mean, obviously there are like you know, narrative arcs and that sort of thing in there, but if you were just doing it for pure entertainment value, you might want to strip out some stuff. So, I mean, it, it's astonishing that Beowulf actually works as well as it does, and it's not surprising that they tried and kind of screwed up the uh, the film adaptation. I'm, I'm only aware of the one. I don't know if there's others. But from a pure story perspective... God, like, I was hoping I could make it through perfect. this episode without talking about Angelina Jolie. Because <laughs> that who that was. That movie was terrible. <laughs> was she, was, she was Grendel's mother, yeah. No, well, all you need to it, do, it, it, and it's, it's so retarded, bad, all you need to do is just tell the freaking story. Like, you don't, you don't even need, like... I'd actually... I'm going to defend it a little bit and say that it probably would have been, it probably would at least hold up a little bit if they didn't go for the whatever 3D shit they did. It makes the movie absolutely unwatchable now. I remember a few months ago, I tried to, I, I like, it was like, okay, I'm going to rewatch this because I remember I saw it in theaters and I was, I was like, God, it was, it was, it was okay. And then I, I turn it on, I'm like, holy shit, I forgot this was like a 3D movie or something. And it, it's absolutely unwatchable. Now it's there is of... another Beowulf film with um, the, it's a sci-fi adaptation with like Christopher Lambert, I think. Uh, <laughs> I've never Highlander all the way through. I, I remember it being on television back in the day. No, no I mean like wow, it's, it was definitely of... riding on the heels of Highlander, but I, I can't really talk about that because film or weak script, yeah. below average acting, corny dialogues, deviation from. The source material over reliance on camp. That sounds impressive. One of the <laughs> one of the one of the things that I it would make I, for good for good film though. You're right, Hank. Well, there's a lot of to that to that point. There's a lot of like great scenes in Beowulf. They could easily be like a a flashback. Or a montage or something from that. But, I mean, um, and it's parts like this. And Raffle, like, again, going back to the Finn section, Raffle brings up, like, you read it, you're like, okay, this is, like, reminding the audience of something they must already know. Like, some other tale of Beowulf they've heard. And the because idea is it, that you tell it multiple times. You this tell it multiple times. A, yeah, yeah. You, this is not a period of time where it's like, let's go see what's playing at the movie theater. Right. It's like you want Beowulf or you want the Bible. And this is this is close to this is in the dragon. This is Beowulf and the dragon. Um, uh, here. So their words brought misery. Beowulf's sorrow beat at his heart. He accused himself of breaking God's law, of bringing the Almighty's anger down on his people. Reproach pounded in his breast. Gloomy and dark, and the world seemed different place, but the hall was gone. The dragon's molten breath had licked across it, burned it. To ashes near the shore it had guarded. The Geats deserved revenge. Beowulf, their leader and lord, began to plan it, ordered a battle shield shaped of iron. Knowing that wood would be useless, that no linden shield could help him, protect him in the flaming heat of the beast's breath, that noble prince would end his days on earth soon would leave his, this brief life, but would take the dragon with him, tear it from the heaped-up treasure it had guarded so long, 
and he'd go it alone, scorning to lead soldiers against an enemy. He saw nothing to fear, thought nothing of the beast's claws or wings or flaming jaws. He had fought before against the worse odds, had survived, been victorious in harsher battles, beginning in Herod, Hrothgar's unlucky hall. He'd killed Grendel, and his mother swept that murdering tribe away, and he'd fought in Higlock's war with the Frisians, fought at his lord's side till a sword reached out and drank Higlock's blood, till a blade swung in the rush of battle killed the Geat's great king. Then Beowulf escaped, broke through Frisian shields, and swam to freedom, saving thirty sets of armor from the scavenging Franks, river people who robbed the dead as they floated by. Beowulf offered them only his sword, ended so many jackal lives that the few who were able skulked silently home, glad to leave him. So Beowulf slam, swam sadly back to Geatland, almost the only survivor of a foolish war. Higlock's widow brought him the crown, offered him the kingdom, not trusting Herdred, her son, and Higlock's to beat off foreign invaders. But Beowulf refused to rule when his lord's own son was alive, and the leaderless Geats could choose a rightful king. He gave Herdred all his support, offering an open heart where Higlock's young son could see wisdom he still lacked himself. Warmth and good, we still were what Beowulf brought his new king. But Swedish exiles came, seeking protection. They were rebels against Onella, Hilfdana's half-son, and the best ring-giver his people had ever known. And Onella came too, a mighty king, marched on Geatland with a huge army. Herdred had given him his word, and now he gave his life, shielding the Swedish strangers. Onella wanted nothing more. When Herdred had fallen, that famous warrior went back to Sweden, let Beowulf rule. And then it goes immediately to, but Beowulf remembered how his king had been killed. As soon as he could, fun, as soon as he could, he lent the last, the Swedish rebel soldiers in gold, helped him to a better battle across the wide sea for victory and revenge, and the Swedish throne were won and Onella was slain. So we get those sons survived. No matter what dangers he met, what battles he fought, brave and forever triumphant, till the day faint sent him to the dragon and sent him death. And then it immediately goes back to, okay, how do I deal with the dragon? So it's these little signs like, oh, remember how, like, for, uh, you know, Beowulf apparently murdered <laughs> like, a ton of Franks just... for no reason? <laughs> Remember that? I, I want to point out how, how how based that that one line is, though. It's incredibly based, namely uh, when victory, revenge, and the throne are one. I mean, yeah. it's just fucking incredibly based. It's insanely metal. I love and like these the, flashbacks. Like, I also want to point out. The... Go ahead, Nick. Uh, well, I feel bad now because of what I was gonna because of what I'm about to say. But um, I actually think that Angelina Jolie is correctly cast as Grendel's mother. Um, that's not necessarily <laughs> the problem with that film. I mean, but go right, on, Hank. What were you gonna say about the flashbacks? If you're if you're doing the campfire story bit, there there's a structural reason why you have the asides, right? So that because it's some little self-contained vignette where like you can have those on tap 
in like a uh, an oral presentation uh, because it's fairly simple. It's like many like he remembered back that time he killed all those people. It was great. It lets you catch your breath. It lets you remember where you are in the plot. It lets you come up with the embellishments that you're going to do. Frankly, it allows for a bathroom break and like everybody to get snacks and stuff. Like the it's the equivalent of the talky parts of the Avengers. Always the snacks. Yeah. Like the flashback is always like it's you see it again, like in the Iliad. You you have these little uh asides or these like descriptions of things that are uh contemporary currents but it's like some little vignette and they're right. also helpful because you can mix and match them. Like you can kind of slide them in at appropriate places. If you forget how you're actually telling the story. So, I mean, I, I think that there's pretty strong evidence that at this point in time, basically all stories were fundamentally based on an oral trans uh, oral tradition. And then later, like they were probably transcribed edited buffed up like beowulf the book is clearly you know i i don't think that it's uh it kind of has the same uh character that you would get from like a strict transcription of a spoken work but i think that you can see with these structural aspects the way that it derives from a uh, a spoken work like campfire tale horror show for the kids so there is a um there is a man who uh has done a, a live presentation with, with even with a with a liar like a rep uh, liar replication and he plays it um uh, his name is benjamin graham or something like that i will we'll link it um anyways you can find it on youtube he does the entire poem from start to finish in old English um, with modern English translations on a screen behind him. But he does it in the same style. How many, how many views does this have? I just got to ask. <laughs> I will <laughs> as, tell you. As, as much as the, uh, the latest uh, Dua Lipa video. I don't even know. I don't even know if you know who that is. I was recently Adam, informed. What is Dua Lipa? I didn't know who it was either. But apparently, this is what Americans are watching. So I got his name wrong. His name is Benjamin Bagby, and well, yeah, um, Benjamin Graham was the intelligent investor that Warren Buffett studied at the feet of. But uh, yeah. I'm glad it's a different name. Anyways, it has seventeen thousand views. <laughs> <laughs> So we're doing well. <laughs> it's like less than what we used to get, but okay. <laughs> yeah. On YouTube. Yeah, so, these things while you can, by the way. Yeah. So, I mean, if you guys want an idea, and it's not exactly a, a, a pure recreation, like we don't know what their cadence would have been, for example, how they would have spoken. Um, but it is definitely supposed, and I think it accomplished it. It captures the feeling, and he is a very accomplished linguist. He... Um, has spent an immense amount of time really familiarizing himself with the old English tongue. And he speaks it as though it was just a, a natural second language. Um, and he is able to give a lot of emotion. And um, I think that he, he does it purely from an oral sense. And it is presented as 
a mix of song, uh, a ballad, if you will, and a mix of also flashback storytelling. And um, it's a it is a great, uh, as Hank has called it, a great camp a campfire presentation almost for a live audience of, uh, of the, the myth of Beowulf. So if you want an idea for maybe something close to how this was originally intended or um, the old tales of Beowulf or whoever this is really about or um, were performed, that, that gives you a, some small notion of it. Does anyone else have any any thoughts about the uh, the enduring epic of the English speaking peoples? Well, I just had it's one. It's a hundred pages in translation, and you can get it for effectively nothing uh, at any used bookstore. So go and pick up a copy. It's also completely free online. So is the Old English edition. Like you don't spend any money. There's no publishing rights to Beowulf. So, yeah, I, I just said one. Uh, outstanding question that I'm not sure we answered properly. Why is this so important in England? I I know there's sort of the Anglo-Saxon migration theory, but it is set in Denmark and so is Hamlet, which also threw me for a curve when I was forced to read Shakespeare, which I'll never do again on my own accord, by the way. But um, it's strange. It's like, why is... Oh, that's a damn shame, Adam. Yeah, well, sorry, but uh, it is what it is. Um, so why 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 the uh, Danish connection? I, I just don't quite understand it. No one really knows. Um, there are, as we've kind of talked about, there's many theories about why this takes place in a foreign land, and it could be that maybe this um, at the time, and this just has not been adequately recorded that um, this was a common tale and this was but yet the Old English um, uh, sort of transcribing of the tale. Same way you publish a book and it gets published in 20, 30 languages around the world. It's just different translations of the same thing. Although most of the scholarly work seems to suggest that's not the case. There are certain linguistic elements to it that definitely – um, intent it make it seem as though it was specifically written uh, or however it was composed what we read is now is com- was definitely composed by someone of the old English world um, for very specific purposes. Why they chose the story of Beowulf also not known. My, my theory is that um, Beowulf, uh, the character was, um, if not a real man, a enduring tale that had grown to be a larger-than-life figure, uh, mythological or not, and had taken on many different stories over the years with the central characters, Hrothgar, Higlach, or Viglach, Beowulf, Onella, um, and maybe other characters we never never meet or never hear of uh, because they were lost. But I, I suspect that the English did it for many reasons. But most of all, um, you have to remember that the the old Anglo-Saxons were at their core. Um, they were men of the north. They were um, they were 
basically uh, only less than 100 miles removed from um, the Danes at the time. The area that they originally inhabited in the northern plains of Germany and southern Denmark, you know, it, literally part of their territory was, was in uh, where modern Denmark is. Yeah. Um, and so these are these people are all very close to each other. You see this a lot in the story itself, where there's this world that exists of legend within the story. The, the Danish king, Hrothgar, is familiar with the stories of Adgetho, Beowulf's father. And I think he even implies that he met him and he knew him. He didn't just hear stories about him, he knew him. So here you have two different peoples, two different kingdoms, nations, if you will, who are very familiar with each other's very personal stories of heroic deeds. So then stands to re, you know, sort of implying that this is maybe how the Anglo-Saxons heard the stories of Beowulf. Um, it was just part of the circuit in the area. They heard the story of this man who had done this, and then another story of, uh, of him doing another thing. And it sort of grew from there. Um, my personal belief, too, and this is just purely conjecture, but I, I suspect that part of the reason uh, why Beowulf was so particularly important to the Old English and why that story does not show up necessarily anywhere else, and especially in the places where it was supposed to have taken place, is that I think that there is an entire lost mythology that involves Beowulf and the Angles and the Saxons. Because there's this whole period of time uh, that is lost. The whole period of time from the slaying of Grenville till Beowulf as the old man, it's decades have passed. We don't know what adventures Beowulf went on. We don't know what adventures Beowulf might have gone on before Grendel. Because prior to Grendel, he was already well-known and he was already an ambitious guy. And I suspect that there might have been a set of stories or very personally heartfelt um, uh, legends or just tales that were either for the campfire or maybe as important as epics to be uh, recited to the king or to the chieftain about um, this heroic man from Geatland who had helped the Angles and the Saxons or the, the kingdom of Angles at one point. Um, we definitely know that uh, people like the Frisians and the Franks uh, were, were part of this world. Uh, they show up in the story. The Frisians are uh, still around to this day. And um, linguistically, they are amongst the closest um, modern speakers of any language or dialect similar to Old English. So when you hear Frisian, you're hearing something very similar to how Old English would have sounded in its grammatical structure and um, and, and intonation and so forth. So if they knew the Frisians, they almost certainly knew the Angles. They almost certainly knew the Saxons. Um, they almost certainly knew the Utes. Uh, and they might have even known of, the, of Britain, which was not far away from any of this. And we know that there had been extensive um, back and forth travel 
The Romans even accounted for this, these Northmen coming to Britain when they owned it for various reasons. So it stands to reason that everyone knew everyone else in this area. And I, I suspect that based on all that, um, there is a reason why Beowulf is important to the English. And unfortunately, it's been lost. Um, but I suspect that um, it, it is a lost tale in a small sliver of a window into a whole world um, that itself is lost. And that is the, the old world of, of the English and who they really are and where they really came from and um, how they got to be who they are today. Come on, you're a man, 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 you